Just as a short recap for those maybe who weren't here last week, um, the big thing that we saw at the end of the book of Matthew, which James alluded to uh, when he was sharing, is that Jesus has called each one of his people to be a disciple maker. And many of us uh, don't identify, self-identify as someone who has the ability to do that. We see that as kind of this, you know, spiritual elite person that could do that, but not me. And, and yet this is a call that Jesus gives to each and every one of us that know him. And what he does is he reminds us, he didn't just call us to go therefore and make disciples, make people who are lifelong learners of me, people yourself, and then those who you are making disciples of that reorganize their entire lives around me. He says two things. At the front, he says, all authority in heaven and, earth, and, and on earth is mine. This is right after he's been resurrected, so all the power is his. And then he says, and behold, take note of this. Look at this. I am with you until the end of the age. So, so Jesus is actually with you as you're making disciples through his Holy Spirit. As we talked about, it's, it's better that Jesus be inside us through his Spirit than beside us. That's a little bit of where we were at last week. And where we're going to be headed for the next few weeks, we're going to spend two weeks on each part of how we understand and define what a disciple is. So as we talked about somebody who's a disciple or learner of Jesus, um, they're doing three things. They're being with Jesus. So we're going to spend two weeks on that starting today. They're like Jesus. We're going to spend two weeks on that, and they're helping others do the same. We'll spend two weeks on that, all right? So today, the question that we're asking you is, what is the foundation of being a disciple maker? What, if you miss, do you miss out on the whole thing entirely? What is the beginning? What's the first domino? I think that this is um, particularly important for those of us, including myself, who you may this morning have walked in here feeling spiritually empty, feeling spiritually dry, feeling spiritually powerless. And maybe if not today, you've been there before and you, you may be looking around at other people and thinking, you know, what, what have they got that I don't? It seems like they're growing. It seems like their faith is active. It seems like they've just got something that I don't. I, I'm missing something. What we're going to be looking at this morning uh, addresses that head on of how do you grow? How do you have spiritual energy and power? That's what we're going to be looking at. And Jesus in John 15 uses the image of a gardener, a vine, and its branches and its fruit to illustrate how God grows us as his people and does things through us to extend through us, the person and work of Jesus to those around us. So uh, in John 15, we see that Jesus says that if you prove to be my disciples, if this is true of you. So this is what we're looking at. We're going to be looking at this chapter in three sections. Uh, So the first is this. What happens when I'm with Jesus? What happens when I'm with Jesus? The second is what happens when I'm not with Jesus? And third, how to be with Jesus. So what happens when I am with Jesus? What happens when I'm not with Jesus? And third, 
how to be with Jesus, all right? So first, what happens when I'm with Jesus? Jesus here in John 15 is, this is smack dab in the middle of what is called the farewell or the upper room discourse. It takes up John 13 through 17, and this is after Jesus has been rejected by those who are not his disciples. This is the last day before he is to be handed over to be killed. So these are some of the last things that he is saying to this new community of people that he is developing. He's giving them uh, final words and encouragements and instructions. And right in the middle of it, in John 15, this is where we get that, that image that Jesus gets. He says that his father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. He's the vine. You as his people are the branches. And when we're connected to, to him, he bears fruit through us. So I want us to look specifically at verse 4. John 14, verse 4. It says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus calls them to abide in him. This word pops up 10 times in these 11 verses. So I think, think Jesus is wanting, wanting you to hear this. Abide means to remain or to stay, to linger, to be connected to, to make your home in, to be with. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. He's saying, I want you to remain in me. I want you to stay with me, around me. And Jesus, again, he uses the perfect image for this. He says that he's a vine, and most likely, being in this, the area of the world he was in at the time, most likely he had in mind a grape vine. It's most likely what he was thinking about. And so he says that, he picks up this image that's used a lot throughout the Old Testament of the people of God being a vine, but they end up being this wild vine that's, that's not really bearing fruit in the right way. And so Jesus picks this up and says, you know what, the people of God in the Old Testament and you now, you, you can't be the vine. You can't be the source, the source of spiritual power and energy. You were never meant to be, actually. And so Jesus actually picks it up and says, you know what, you as, as people have failed. And, I, and that was the way it was supposed to be from day one. And I'm stepping in to say that that, is, that pressure is off of you, and that's on me. And this image, it brings to mind the fact that this happens organically, naturally, right? So often, uh, walking with Jesus can feel like a grind. Like, oh, there's, there's so many things I'm supposed to do, so many things I'm not doing, so many things that I'm failing, so many things I need to grow in, and I just don't feel like I have the energy for it. I just don't feel like I have the desire for it. And Jesus is saying that when you do it this way, it happens naturally. You don't have to force it or coerce it. It just happens. Just like a vine with a branch, the branch doesn't think about, it doesn't try hard to bear fruit. It just happens because it's connected to the vine. There's a story that, uh, that I, I've shared before. So you may have heard me share this before, but um, I read it in a book by Scott Sauls, who is a pastor in Nashville, a book called Befriend. And in it, he shares a story of one of the small groups uh, that he was leading in his home. And he, he shares about this one night in particular. This one night in particular, 
uh, a couple showed up on their front doorsteps. This was a couple that was, it was their first time visiting the group, and this was a couple that nobody in the group knew. So they didn't really even know how this group found them in the first place. So they knock on the door, and they welcome them in, and very quickly they realize that the husband is drunk. So he showed up to small group drunk. The wife is obviously distressed. She's frazzled, and uh, you can tell they're, they're, they are, they're in a rough spot in their life, in their marriage. And right as they walked in, it was kind of late, and so they were just about to get started, and the group typically started with a time of, of just group prayer. And so the pastor that was leading the group uh, just did what they always do, which is, all right, let's get started. So they opened it up for anybody to pray. And as you can imagine, drunk dude wanted to pray. So when there was a little bit of silence, drunk dude started praying. And he prayed some, some crazy things. He talked about how he prayed for uh, protection, specifically from Klingons. He was, very, you know, Star Trek, Trekkie stuff, right? He's very, you know, scared about the Klingons coming to, you know, infiltrate. And he started praying for God to provide for them, but he wanted them to provide Jolly Ranchers. He just said, God, I just please give me, just provide Jolly Ranchers. I mean, just, he's drunk, right? So he's praying for crazy, crazy things. And as he finished praying, everybody opens their eyes and everybody immediately looks at the pastor and they're thinking, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? What's next? And the pastor writing, writing the, the book, it says, like, I, I really didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And there's just this awkward silence. And he says, and after a few moments of that awkward silence, it was broken by one of the women in the group. One of the ladies in the group spoke directly to the drunk guy, and she said, would you like a cookie? And as she began to get him a cookie, some of the other ladies in the group went over to his wife. And they started saying, we want to help you. We want to do whatever you need. How can we help you? How can we care for you? We, we see, obviously, you are, you're crying. This is, you're in a tough, what can we do to help you? Because of that response, that couple came back the next week. And they came back the next week. And then they end up visiting their church. And he, the husband, was not a Christian. He ended up hearing the gospel, putting his faith in Jesus. And then the church rallied around some money to get this guy to rehab because he was an alcoholic. They got him into rehab. He ends up getting sober. He's sober for a little while. He's growing so much in his faith. He becomes an elder at their church. And this pastor says that he is to this day one of the best elders that they've ever had. And it started because these, this group of women in their small group offered a cookie and commitment to them. Now, how do you get to be that way? How do you know instinctively in that moment to respond that way? You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what, if you're leading a small group. There's no training that's going to tell you how to handle that moment. They had been with Jesus those ladies were abiding in Christ day by day, moment by moment. Their focus was not first on being like Jesus. Oh, what would Jesus do in this moment? They didn't have to think about that. They just naturally, organically bore the fruit of love and care, not shame and judgment, because they had been with Jesus. 
This is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples in this moment, the the last day before he's going to die, and what he's trying to get across to you, that he wants you to be with him before you try to be like him. He wants you to be with him before you try to do things for him. Quite the invitation and quite the upside down of what we naturally think that God wants from us. We think God wants us to get busier because we talked last week. I mean, I kind of put the pressure on, if you are here last week, and this hopefully course corrects a little bit for you, to know that the way that we actually grow is not just by trying to exert energy. It's by remaining in Christ, drawing near to Jesus, getting around Jesus because love is caught more than it's taught. You know, I, I can sit up here all day and tell you about the love of God, tell you about the love of God, but until you experience it for yourself, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. But when you do, over time, it begins to take you deeper into Christ to where those roots get deep and you begin to bear fruit. You begin to, little things just start popping up in your life that are an expression of the very spirit of Christ in you. So that's what happens when we are with Jesus. He starts to rub off on you. Starts to rub off on you. Now, this is our second section. What happens when I'm not with Jesus? Jesus tells us uh, what happens when we don't remain in him, when we don't abide in him. It says in verse 5, the next verse, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So he alluded to it in verse 4 by saying, uh, you know, if the, if the branch isn't connected to the vine, then it's not going to bear fruit. But right here, he just comes right out and says, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is not an excuse to do nothing, right? This is an explanation of if you see spiritual dryness in your life, if you feel like a dried up branch laying dead on the ground, this is why. The answer is not, okay, just try to get the branch to, to do stuff, to just bear fruit on its own. No, this is, this is an invitation to go deeper with Jesus than you're going right now. And that's the step that we can all take. That's the step that we can all take today. To go deeper with Jesus than we have gone up until this moment in our life. That's the invitation that Jesus gives to us. This is, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that this, this helps get across to those of you who feel ashamed that you aren't doing enough. Feel ashamed that you aren't spiritual enough, that you aren't growing enough. I think uh, this helps us begin to see maybe some of the reasons why. Because the reality is is that you will abide in something. You will make your home in something or someone. You will look to something to be the branch that gives you energy and power in your life. And I think generally there's kind of two directions that, that we can do this, where we can kind of detach from the vine and end up like a dry branch on the ground. I think on one hand, you can find yourself doing Jesus-y things but missing Jesus. So I'm just going to do, I'm going to get into a small group. I'm just, I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to start doing Christian stuff more. But you miss Jesus. Or on the other hand, it's the opposite side. 
where you, you take steps away from Jesus and you begin to have Jesus substitutes, counterfeits that you're making your home in. So just to illustrate what I think these can look like uh, by two different, uh, two different people, there's a, a pastor and author, Zach Eastwine, who writes about this idea of missing Jesus for doing Jesus-y things, and you actually still end up disconnected from the vine. He writes about this in his book, um, Sensing Jesus, and he's sharing about a time in his life of uh, just intense spiritual busyness, doing tons of things in the name of Jesus. And uh, he says that there were, you know, he had mentors, bosses, and friends who, over the course of years, said, man, like, you, you are going too fast, and you're actually missing the whole point of this. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of spiritual stuff, but you're missing, you're missing Jesus. There's no joy in your life. There's no regular walking with Jesus. And so he said things changed one day when he got a letter from his mom, and he said this. He said, then I received a letter. It was the old-fashioned kind of letter with a stamp on the envelope, and the words were written by hand with a pen, and I opened it and heard my mom's voice as soon as I read. She said, son, a tree has to have roots to provide shade. A tree has to have roots to provide shade. So many of us want to provide shade in that we want to be spiritually effective. We want to matter in the kingdom. We want to honor Jesus. We want to do what he's called us to do. But how often are we expecting there to be branches that grow out providing shade when we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got so much stuff to do today. I've got so much stuff to do for Jesus, perhaps, that I don't even have time to be with him. And the roots, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. And when we don't have deep roots in Christ and in his love for us, we will constantly, you will constantly be frustrated that you're not providing more shade, that you're not bearing more fruit. On the other hand, though, is where we take a step away from Jesus and we look for counterfeit gods, pseudo-saviors, people and things to be for us our home, where we make our home, where we remain in. There's another author who uh, writes about this named Brent Curtis. And I'm just going to read a, a quick quote from, from what he says about this, where he's actually talking about this idea of abiding in Christ. He says, if I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? I once asked myself, and I began to notice that when I was tired or anxious, there were certain sentences I would say in my head that led me to a familiar place. The journey to this place would often start with me walking around disturbed, discouraged, feeling as if there was something deep inside that I needed to put in the words that I couldn't quite capture. I felt this something as anxiety and loneliness and a need for connection with someone. And if no connection came, I would start to say things like, life really stinks. Why is it always so hard? It's never going to change. And if no one noticed I was struggling or asked me what was wrong, I found myself, uh, I found the sentences shifting to a more cynical level of who cares? Life is just a joke. I don't matter. And surprisingly, by the time I was saying those, those last sentences, I was feeling better. The anxiety was greatly diminished. My comforter, my abiding place was cynicism and rebellion. From this abiding place, I would feel free to use some soul, as he calls it, cocaine, watching a violent video with maybe some sexual uh, immorality thrown in, 
having more alcohol with a meal than I might normally drink that would allow me to feel better for just a little while. I had always thought of these things just as bad habits, but I began to see they were much more. They were spiritual abiding places that were my comforters and friends in a very spiritual way. So whether for you, and oftentimes I know for me, it is an odd combination of both of abiding in over-spiritual activity and, and thinking that I can bear fruit, but I'm actually not connected to the vine. Or on the other hand, looking for comfort, looking for an abiding place in things that uh, they promise so much and they give so little. Either way, we end up miserable. We end up dry. We end up empty. We end up like a dead branch on the ground. And Jesus has so much more for you. He has so much more for you. And this brings us to our final section of how to be with Jesus. So what happens when we're with, we're with Jesus, we organically, naturally, he begins to do things from the inside out. And we bear fruit and we extend him into the world, not because we're trying hard, but because he's just doing something in us, because we're around him. What happens when we're not with Jesus? We end up dry and dead and miserable and empty and frustrated and disappointed and ashamed of ourselves. So how can we be with Jesus? If the bedrock of being a disciple is this, that it starts with being with Jesus before being like Jesus, what's the first domino? How do you do it? Well, Jesus goes further in telling us not simply to abide in him. He goes further to clarify that. He says, In verse 9, abide in my love. Abide in my love. It says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, we hear love, and in English, we don't think a whole lot about it, because you can love, you can say, I love you, and that be to your significant other. You can say, I love you, and that be to a street taco. And it basically, you know, it's the same word, with varying degrees of, I mean, depending on how much you love street tacos, it might be close to how much you love your significant other. I don't know. Uh, street tacos are, are amazing. Um, but in the original language of the New Testament, there were multiple words for the word love that conveyed different levels of it and meanings of it. And the word that's used here is the word that's used most often throughout the New Testament. And uh, it's the word agape. And this word agape that Jesus says, as the Father has agaped me, so I have agaped you. Abide in my agape. This is what it means. It means unconditional care. Typically, your love and my love is very conditional. It's conditional upon how the other person treats us, conditional on how attractive the other person is, conditional on everything. I mean, pretty much for us to feel like we can love someone, they've pretty much got to be the perfect person not just in a romantic way, but just in a friendship way. I mean, this has got to be, they've got to treat me perfectly and be the perfect person. Agape flips that on its head, and it says it's not looking for something in the other to make you love them. It, it flows freely from the one giving the love. And so in this way, agape love is amazing. And agape love can keep giving even when the other person is undeserving, unresponsive, unkind. 
This is the love that flows from the heart of God. You don't get this love anywhere else in the world, any other religion. This comes from the heart of the God of the Bible. And Jesus says, abide in that love that kept giving even when you were my enemy. And where do we see this displayed? Crystal clear. What is Jesus alluding to? What it was about to happen in the next few hours? That he's going to be hung on a cross. He's going to be killed. He's going to be rejected, not only by the world, but his disciples pushed out of the world onto a cross. Because he has to? No. Because he wants to. Because we were worthy and deserving in that moment? No, he was absorbing everything that made you unworthy. Everything that made you worthy of punishment. He was absorbing all of that. The cross tells us, at the heart of Christianity, the good news is that God loves you because he loves you. That is the condition. It's him not you. And so Jesus says, abide in that. Get around that, and it will transform you. It will change you from the inside out. And as 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. God is saying, this is what, I'm, this is what I've done for you. Now, drink that in. Receive that how do we do that? Well, it starts with acknowledging that if this is the kind of love that God has for us, then this opens the door for you to be brutally honest with yourself and brutally honest with God about how much you actually need him. He's not asking you to put on a mask. He's not asking you to, to hide those things from him. He's asking you to bring those things to him. And this is how uh, Scott Sauls closes this, uh, this chapter that, that I was mentioning earlier about this idea. So I'm going to read another quote from him. It says this, How do we become the kinds of people who form a grace mob that silences the shame mob, who respond to a drunk husband with cookies and commitment, who feed and bless and pray for those intent on hurting us? How does that kind of love flourish? There is only one way. We must be convinced that love has, has to be a person to us before it can become a verb. The one who is love incarnate, Jesus, doesn't love you only when you're at your best. He loves you when you're at your worst. He loves you when you're caught in the act. He loves you when you fall asleep instead of watching and praying with him. When you deny him three times when you become his persecutor, when you come into his prayer meetings drunk, drunk on ambition, drunk on greed, drunk on pornographic imaginations, drunk on resentful grudges, and drunk on self-righteousness, from these places he asks, do you like cookies? May I get you one? Will you sit with me? How about rehab? May I come alongside you towards sobriety? Can I pay the fee? Then a new life. Then a seat at my table. 
and a job in my kingdom. I went to the battlefield and I loved from the battlefield to set this love trajectory for your life. Protection from the Klingons, sweeter than Jolly Ranchers. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. That is Christianity. That is the real Jesus who says, bring to me your need and your need only. so that my love can transform you and make you into the person that you want to be, to make you into the person that you think that I think you should be. You can't get there on your own. So come and abide in me. Remain with me. Now, practically, I know, how do I do this? I think there's a few ways. Like I mentioned, like getting honest with God. If you've never done that before, I invite you to do that today. Get honest with God. He welcomes that. He's not looking for you to impress him. And if you have done that, there's some some things that the church historically has called the means of grace. Not means to grace, but means of channels. Things that allow you to stand in this river, so to speak, and to receive this. So things like baptism. Things like reading scripture. Not just to, to gain knowledge, but to encounter God, to meet with Jesus. Prayer. Gathering with fellow believers. The Lord's Supper which we're going to celebrate in just a moment. These are ways in which, channels in which, rivers in which we can enter into to experience God's transforming, undying love. 